Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number two in our discussion of Alice's Adventures. <laughs> sorry, sorry for I uh, misclicked over there. I'm still trying to. I've got, I've got a little brace on my hand here. Injured one of my fingers, and uh, trying to use the mouse with this thing is ridiculous. Anyway. Hello, and welcome back. Um, so, a quick announcement before we start. Um, I mentioned this last night, but I wanted to mention it again. Um, our Mythmoot registration this year. So, Mythmoot is coming up very soon. We're less than a month away from the beginning of Mythmoot. It starts on June 23rd, of course, Thursday, June 23rd, um, going through the 26th, uh, that Sunday. And um, But I wanted to let people know, we do have to close registration. There's a deadline for registration on June 9th. This is for physical attendance for those of you who are going to be actually joining us at the Dulles Airport Marriott, which is our location this year. Um, so registration will close on June 9th. If you're going to want to be with us in person, we can't take registrations past that. We're uh, not allowed to let people in at the door. Uh, our new, uh, uh, the, our new venue is very mean. So anyway, there it is. Um, so I just want to make sure everybody knows about that, um, that, uh, we, uh, you need to get your registrations in by June 9th. So sooner is definitely better for those of you who were hoping to be able to join us personally at Mythmoot, which is going to be a very great deal of fun, uh, this year. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, the I would emphasize, though, we, of course, are also going to do digital attendance. Uh, so the um, uh, the uh, we're, it's going to be a fully hybrid experience as it was last year. And the digital registration is open through the last minute, past the last minute, indeed, um, as it's possible to register for it's possible to register digitally all the way up until uh, like the last day of the conference, I think, actually. So um, all should be well as far as that is concerned. But if you were going to come in person, then uh, June 9th is our deadline for that. All right. Um so, uh, <laughs> yeah, JJ is wondering if we've procure, procured enough paper for the long division reenactment. Well, that is a tempting reenactment now, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Um, Kit, I don't know. Have you tried contacting the Mythmoot people? They might be able to help. I'm not sure about with lodging, but you should definitely uh, contact them to let them know. Uh, and we'll see what we can do to help. Um uh, I'm not involved in that, so I really know very little about this process. But I do know that the people involved are always would be very happy to help. So um, uh, get get back in touch with them and see uh, what they think. But anyway, let's jump back into our Alice discussion as Alice uh, is going to have uh, issues with her person here uh, today, primarily. Um, so you'll remember our context here, right? The context is she's fallen down the rabbit hole and she fell for a very, very long time. Um, and then having fallen for a very, very long time, uh, she lands and is in this room by herself. So she sees the white rabbit again and then it runs away from her. Um, then the drama of the next few chapters, really, right, um, is that she is 
she's trying to get out into the garden. She can see the garden and the garden looks beautiful. She's in this room, right? Which is relatively boring. And she can see there's a door and she can see through the door into this beautiful sunlit garden. And she really, really wants to go out into the garden. Um, and she's trying to figure this out. We looked at the passage where she uh, thought she might be able to shut herself up like a telescope, right? Collapse herself like a telescope so that she could get through the hole. And she was uh, uh, concerned about separating her head from her shoulders and that her head wouldn't be any good to anybody um, once it had been separated from her shoulders. Um, now she's drinking and eating the cake, right? She's eating the cake drinking the uh, the drink, and we looked at the uh, the drink passage last time in particular. Um, and she keeps growing and shrinking. Like, the whole drama of this entire passage, um, the goal itself begins to be forgotten. Uh, at least I find myself forgetting it, right? Alice even seems to forget it at times. Uh, she gets distracted from it at the very least. Um, this goal being to head out into the garden. And there are so many delays and there are so many difficulties that she experiences um, uh, trying to get out through that door, out into the garden, um, that she herself seems almost to forget about it um, for long stretches of time. And she gets entirely occupied with herself. And indeed, the story and the drama is focused entirely on, on herself and her own person and her relationship with her person, right? And this is true in a couple different ways. Um, we've seen her uh, talking about her relationship with parts of her body, like her head, right, as she was discussing before. But she also distances herself from herself in mental concept here as well. So uh, this is the last passage we're going to read from chapter one. Come, there's no use in crying like that, said Alice to herself rather sharply. I advise you to leave off this minute. This is after she's grown very large, right? She's eaten the cake and grown very big. Uh, she generally gave herself very good advice, though she very seldom followed it. And sometimes she scolded herself so severely as to bring tears into her own eyes. And once she remembered trying to box her own ears for having cheated herself in a game of croquet she was playing against herself. For this curious child was very fond of pretending to be two people. But it's no use now, thought poor Alice, to pretend to be two people. Why, there's hardly enough of me left to make one respectable person. Oh, sorry. Um, she shrunk. This is before she grows big. Again, I'm sorry. I was misplacing this passage. Um, so it's after she's drunk the drink and she's shrunk down very, very small. Right. Um, and this is when she uh, this is when she. Uh, that's what she's castigating herself for crying right in the middle of when she's uh, crying for being small. Okay. What do we see going on? So first of all, a question I find myself asking all the time when I'm reading Lewis Carroll is what am, what is supposed to be happening here? Like what, 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 what am I reading? Like what's going on even like what, what, what matters? in this story, if you see what I mean. Um, by what matters, what I mean is, what am I supposed to be following? What am I supposed to care about? Right? Um, 
so far, the book is called Alice in Wonderland. And so far, we've been exploring almost entirely Alice's own internal states. Now, external things have been happening to her, right? She's encountering strange and indeed wonderful things as uh, she's encountered, you know, this magic potion, which tasted simultaneously like eight conflictingly delicious things. Um, uh, but apparently with positive and not disgustingly intermingled effect. And, uh, and then she shrank magically down to a very, very small size, which you'll remember on the one hand is just what she wanted because she wanted to get small so that she could get through the hole to get out to the garden. But of course there's a key to the door that she needs in order to get out to the garden. And the key is on the table, which now she can't reach because she's small. Right. So we have this, you know, so Alice is in this cleft stick, right? Where her own desires, like what she is wanting to happen is as conflicted as like her personalities appear to be here, right? Yeah, Jen Artanis, it does sound almost like a test in problem solving, doesn't it? Um, like uh, Alice is supposed to, like, like almost like this is a sort of a physical riddle, right? That Alice is supposed to, uh, supposed to be able to solve. But again, it's another reason why it sort of seems that all of this narrative seems to be, um, uh, internal, right? Um, it's it's all about Alice herself, right? And here we see a drama, indeed a kind of like meta drama, right? In watching Alice, so we're watching Alice and the kind of divisions within Alice, right? And the thing you know, her wanting she she you know she wants to want to be small now she needs to be big, right? Which she's going to get that wish as well, and it's still going to be a problem, right? Um, and she's going to get small again, and that's going to be a problem again, right? Um, so. Things, um, things never work out happily. But again, look at what's happening here. Um, she speaks to herself rather sharply. I advise you to leave off this minute. Now, this begins sort of normally enough, right? Um, somebody's talking to themselves. Somebody uh, speaking sternly to themselves, speaking sharply to themselves. That's, um, that happens, right? That's not so very strange. Um... She generally gave herself very good advice, though she very seldom followed it, which is a wry comment at her expense, right? Um, pointing, again, to this sort of division within her, right? On the one hand, she knows the best way to behave, right? So we have this division between her understanding of what's supposed to happen, of what she's supposed to do, how she's supposed to act, and on the one hand, and on the other hand, her actual, her actions, right? Her her her, her actions, in fact. Um, and so she's giving herself good advice, but very seldom following it. And that doesn't seem so very strange either, right? Here, this, uh, you know, to this point in the paragraph, this seems to make Alice, uh, you know, this kind of uh, every person, right? Like, we can all relate to that. And sometimes she scolded herself so severely as to bring tears into her own eyes. Okay, so that starts to go a little over the edge, right? It's one thing to chide yourself 
to make yourself cry? I mean, again, on the one hand, sure, right? Like you make yourself think things which leads to your being sad or feeling remorse or whatever, right? Um, okay, like I can sort of understand that. And yet we have this idea, what, what began sort of simply, right? Um, as, you know, her scolding herself and speaking to herself sharply and giving herself advice that she doesn't follow, um, now is sort of pushing the two sides of her further and further apart, right? So that one of them is having an impact on the other, you know, in a way which is... And then we have it d distanced a step further, right? She's trying to box her own ears, right? So she's, she's actually... She's actually smacking herself, right, um, for having cheated herself in a game of croquet she was playing against herself, right? Um, and again, like, notice that once more, um, <laughs> there's a basic foundation of something which is very understandable, right? I, when I was a child, used to play games against myself all the time, right? There was uh, one of my favorite pastimes when I was a kid was, uh, like, getting a board game and starting a, like, four- or six-player game, uh, right? Playing uh, all, the, all the sides. Um, so, sure, I can get that. Like, that, there's, that just requires a little bit of imagination, right? Um, very, being very fond of pretending to be two people. Again, that's... Um, totally normal, right? Um, but to play a game against yourself and to cheat yourself and to catch yourself cheating and then to try to physically punish yourself for cheating against yourself, that's taking the game rather far, isn't it? Right? Um, I mean, one way to sort of think about that, again, normally... And I say normally because it's how I did it. Maybe I'm abnormal, but it seems to me relatively normal, right? That the the pretending to be two people is sort of a means to an end, right? Um, you might, like, have an imaginary friend in order to, you know, you might talk to yourself or to your imaginary friend in order to give yourself someone to talk to, right? That's the goal. Um, you might play a game. You might imagine you are two people playing a game, uh, you know, against other, you know, against each other. Um, because that makes the game more fun, right? But uh, instead, when you try to cheat yourself and you catch yourself cheating and you try, you start hitting yourself, right? You know, you get into a physical confrontation with yourself, right? Um, things have now gotten all turned around, right? Now, instead of imagining herself to be two people in order to accomplish this other thing, right? The fun of playing a game with yourself. Um, now it's like the game itself is only a pretense or an expression of this, you know, larger drama of multiple, <laughs> you know, of, 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 of being two people at the same time. Um, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's a little strange. It's a little strange. Um, uh, yeah, no, I agree, Jocelyn, that we do see kids doing this with each other and with dolls all the time and acting punishments and chastising. Um, yes, yes. Um, and 
like I'm not saying that like Alice is being Im- immensely deviant, right? But this detachment, uh, this questioning of like, who is she? And I love her conclusion here at the end, right? It's no use now, right? To pretend to be two people. Why, there's hardly enough of, of me left to make one respectable person, right? Um, there's no use in pretending to be multiple people. It's not going to do any good, right? Because there's barely enough left to make even one person. Um, this detachment from herself, just as we saw her detachment from her uh, body, and we see it again, right? When she eats the cake and grows big... This is her response. Curiouser and curiouser, cried Alice. She was so much surprised that for the moment she quite forgot how to speak good English. Now I'm opening out like the largest telescope that ever was. Goodbye, feet! For when she looked down at her feet, they seemed to be almost out of sight. They were getting so far off. Oh, my poor little feet! I wonder who will put on your shoes and stockings for you now, dears? I'm sure I shan't be able. I shall be a great deal too far off to trouble myself about you. You must manage the best way you can. But I must be kind to them, thought Alice. Or perhaps they won't walk the way I want to go. Let me see. I'll give them a new pair of boots every Christmas. And she went on planning to herself how she would manage it. They must go by the carrier, she thought. And how funny it'll seem, sending presents to one's own feet. And how odd the directions will look. Alice's right foot, Esquire. Hearthrug, near the fender, with Alice's love. Oh, dear, what nonsense I'm talking. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> right. Yeah, David says, based on what we know about her, I rather doubt Alice would be considered a respectable child in normal life. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, C.S. Lewis uses Alice as an illustration um, in... I believe it's on stories, his essay on stories. And the illustration he uses is, to me, a little bit peculiar. I think there's a defense for it. We'll come to that a little bit later. Um, What he says is he is talking about different kinds of stories and different ways that stories work. And he's complaining, in particular, that modern readers tend to think only about character. Not to be interested in story as such, um, but like character is all in all. So if there's a story in which the characters are flat, you know, which the characters are not well-rounded characters and don't really develop over the course of the story, the story is considered a failure. And his point is, well, that may be true in some kinds of stories, right? But um, novels of manners are not like the only kind of story that there is. And often, when you have well-rounded, uh, well-rounded characters, um, or when the story begins to be so interested in the characters and the development of the characters, then it can't do some other things. And of course, we can see this. I mean, I, I can even see... Um, uh, I, I can even see modern criticisms which have unwittingly echoed this same issue. Uh, think, for instance, of the uh, the Sherlock show, the Cumberbatch and um, Martin Freeman Sherlock show. That was a show which got more and more interested in the characters as time went on, right? By the time we get to season four, um, 
the characters are the primary focus of the entire story. And as the characters and their development and perspective grows, guess what happens? The plot is no longer the focus, right? And that shift, um, detective stories are, of course, one of the genres of stories where the plot matters a good deal more than the characters. And the more dense you make the characters, right? The more um, in-depth the characters are, uh, the more complex uh, and unusual and developing the characters are, the harder it is to maintain, uh, to develop plot. Like that those two things don't, again, it's not that you can't do any of it, but it's, again, it's not the same thing. It's not, you know, a detective story is not uh, Pride and Prejudice. But um, uh, anyway, um, his point is that there are some stories like basically to insist on the same, to, you know, just to, to say that all like, you know, all good stories must have like this is, you know, these same things all good stories must have. He said, no, there are different stories, kinds of story that work differently. And the problem is that we just kind of undervalue some of these. Anyway, in the context of this argument, he brings up Alice um, and he points to Alice and says there, you know, that like. Basically, he said, Lewis Carroll does this perfectly. Um, Alice is in is plunged into very strange circumstances, right? And the world around Alice is so peculiar um, that Lewis makes Alice a very unremarkable girl. Um, and that it's right that he should do so. Because if Alice had great depth of character and were herself a, like, you know, deep, complex, troubled character um, that was, like, learning and developing throughout the story, um, it would be one level of complexity too much and the whole story would fall apart and it wouldn't work. Um, I have a hard time agreeing, not with his premise, I think I agree with his premise, uh, in general, I, I think I agree with the thing he's illustrating, right? Um, but I look at these early chapters of Alice in Wonderland, and I'm like, really? Alice doesn't seem all that simple to me <laughs> as a character. Um, uh, is she an entirely, you know, kind of plain vanilla little girl, as he seemed to be suggesting? Now, here's my defense. Of him, I, I, I do is, is that I think he's primarily thinking of Through the Looking Glass, and I do think that in Through the Looking Glass, Alice, Alice's role is a little bit more that basically she's sort of she's going to function a little bit more as like the straight man to the strange world around her in Through the Looking Glass in Alice in Wonderland. Which, again, it seems to me pretty clear. It, it seems, just based on the number of references, when you look at the, you know, the references to Alice all over the place in Lewis and Tolkien, in their essays, in their, um, uh, in the, again, you see in both of their critical essays, so like in On Stories and, uh, and I believe other places in Lewis's essays, in On Fairy Stories, right, in Tolkien's essays, um, we, both of them, are talking about Alice and using Alice to illustrate uh, important principles. These were, again, foundational stories in their worldviews. Um, and you see quotations to them in other places as well. The vast majority of both of their quotations are from Through the Looking Glass. Um, and so that's 
that's my defense. She does work much more that way there. But here, this is not, you know, straight man Alice, right, who is serving as the straight man for all of the, you know, weirdness and jokes that are happening around her in the world, especially in these early chapters in Alice in Wonderland. The strangeness of Alice herself is the whole story, right? Um, If anything, some of the other creatures seem to be serving as, like, straight man to her, right? Um, But, um, anyway. um, Anyway, so back to um, Alice's feet here. Um, The fact that she perceives her growth. She physically sees her feet getting further away as her as she grows. She grows to like nine feet tall, right? Uh, we're told. And she sees her feet going away and says goodbye to them, right? Her concept here of her relationship with her own body is highly peculiar, right? On the one hand, she feels like she's leaving her feet entirely behind because she's going so very far away from them, right? And yet, she's perfectly well aware that she is still connected to her feet, right? Um, she has to... Um, she must be kind to her feet, right? She can't just sever diplomatic relations with her feet entirely, right? Because if she does then they might not walk the way that she wants to go, right? Um, so she knows she's still connected with him, and indeed, they are still going to have the same relationship that they always had, right, in the sense of her walking around on them, right? So in in this sense, she's well aware of the fact that her actual physical ensemble has not fundamentally changed, right? Changed in proportion only, um, but um, uh, but not in substance, right? And yet, she thinks of it in terms of um, a sort of a tearful separation. Oh, my poor little feet. She begins to think about her feet because she's abandoning her feet, right? Um, uh, yeah, Mighty Felix, it does sound like, you know, her... her she is going to become an absentee parent to her feet. Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I shall be a great deal too far off to trouble myself about you. You must manage the best way you can. She thinks of their abandonment. Who will put on your shoes and stockings for you now, dears? Right? Um, yeah, and David, I think that what we see happening here, right, what we see Lewis playing with is the idea of what does it mean to grow up? What is growing up about? Right? David says it seems to be more relevant for young children whose bodies are constantly changing on them, whereas we adults don't grow anymore except sideways, as uh, Pippin would say. Um, yeah, 
Exactly. And growing up, of course, is just what she's done. And you'll remember that she herself plays on this. She, she, she engages in some wordplay. She and the narrator both engage in some wordplay on this, right? Um, when she says to herself, when she's like nine feet tall and she says, oh, you're, you know, uh, far too big a girl uh, to, to, you know, to talk like that or to cry over things like this, right? And the narrator will pipe in with a, and that was very true, right? Because um, she's now, oh, she's a very big girl indeed. She's nine feet tall, right? Um, so the, those jokes invite us to think about this in terms of growing up. And so look at how she talks to her feet. She talks to her feet as if they are children, right? Um, who still need care, the kind of care that she has gotten as a child, right? Uh, no doubt. She remembers others helping her to put on her shoes and stockings for her, right? But then she became a big girl and able to put on her own shoes and stockings, right? But now she's growing up and leaving her feet behind, right? But her feet will still need someone to put their shoes and stockings on for them, right? Her feet are going to remain in this state of childishness, right? While she has grown up and is very is now very very far removed from her feet right and notice again i shall be a great deal too far off to trouble myself about you right i now that i'm a big girl i'm going to have these other considerations right i can't be bothered with childish things anymore and so um you're going to have to shift for yourself it's like she's telling her feet that her feet need to grow up right like she's growing up Right. Um, she separated herself. She's divided herself into two people. Right. Um, and kind of extrapolated outward this whole sense of um, uh, of growth and responsibility, how she herself um, we often see her. What sounds to me, I think that what we're hearing is her echoing things that were said to her. Right. Um, this happens very often with her theoretical conversations with Dinah, it seems to me, where she speaks to Dinah as a friend, but also um, addresses Dinah with a tone which I think is, I'm so, I am to understand, is echoing tones in which she is spoken to by grown-ups as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Growing up and leaving things behind is also relevant to the relationship of children and parents. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think, but it's it's upside down, right? I mean, it's the child that grows up and um, leaves the parents behind, right? But Alice is not picturing that in this way. She's picturing herself growing up and leaving her feet behind, putting herself, I mean, no, she's putting herself in the parental position, right? I mean, it's the parents that give presents to the children, right? It's, um, children don't send their parents a new pair of boots every Christmas, right? Um, so she's, she's adopting that adult stance, right? In relationship to her own feet. Um, so she sees herself as this adult growing up, leaving the childish things behind, becoming the parent figure, right? To the children. Um, and yet again, that's not exactly how that works, right? Um, who grows up and leaves whom uh, behind? Um, so 
And yes, I agree, Jocelyn. Growth and body size changes um, uh, are a topic of intense interest for children. Yes, yes, it's true. Um, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, notice... I think it's I think it's no accident, Jocelyn. Right, that so much of this early part of the book is just entire. Nothing is like nothing has happened. Right, she fell down the hole, and nothing has happened to her. I mean, she kind of saw the rabbit again, but again, apart from that, nothing has happened apart from the internal drama. Right, the drama of herself. Right, um, of herself growing and changing. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, her adoption of that adult perspective. Uh, you must manage the best way you can, but I must be kind to them, right? But then again, the way she turns that around, you know, so this sort of like noblesse oblige that she has towards her own feet, right? But she realizes her feet still have control, or perhaps they won't walk the way I want to go. Right? Like, I'm, I'm no longer going to be this unified person. I'm going to have to negotiate with myself. She was imagining herself being two people before. She quite enjoys imagining herself being two people. Now, um, she thinks that way automatically. And that, you know, there's now this, there's this gap, there's this difference between the different parts of her body. Um, but the feet are still going to have power over her. She can't go anywhere without them. Um, and she's planning how she's going to manage to send her boots presents. Now, here's the thing. I don't see any reason from within the text. Um, I don't see any reason from within the text to believe that her body is changing in proportion. She's getting bigger. Um, now, I say in the text because the picture does show her strangely proportioned, right? The picture kind of seizes upon the reference. I'm now I'm opening out like the largest telescope that ever was and shows her like neck as really long like a giraffe and stuff. But I have to say, I do not find the pictures very reliable indicators. Or let me say again, let me try and rephrase that a little bit differently. Um... I the pictures themselves do not seem to me to be a very trustworthy reading of the text. Um, they do not always seem to be connected to the text. Um, or even in some places seem to me to be misunderstanding the text. Um, and this seems to me to be one of those times that, yes... She's referring to telescopes because that was her metaphor. She was imagining herself shrinking down, right? Like a telescope is long and then it becomes small, right? And so that's the metaphor she used. If, if I could collapse myself like a telescope, I could get small and go through this little door, right? And now she's opening out like the largest telescope that ever was, right? But I don't think that that means like her neck and body is literally looking like a telescope at that time. It just means that she's growing really, really fast and not shrinking really like she was imagining to. Um, I do believe that there was um, 
um, how do you say, not always a unified vision between Lewis Carroll um, and the guy, and I'm totally, sorry, blanking on the name of the guy, uh, Tennille, was it, who did the wood carvings, the traditional images? Um, these were loved by the original audience of the books. Um, John Tennille, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, but um, I don't think either one of them, Lewis or Tennille, really loved each other's work and neither of them wanted to work together uh, on Through the Looking Glass. Um, but um, but they were forced. Like, the publisher was like, everyone is going to insist. Like, this must happen. Um, and so, it did. Um, but anyway, so yes, the, the, the woodcut picture of Alice that accompanies this shows her distorting, her body distorting. I don't see any evidence in the text, again, apart from that telescope reference, which does not seem to me to convey that, I don't see any evidence in the text that that's true. She's very large. But I think she's still proportional. Um, which is one of the things that makes this rather strange, right? Um, that... Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jack Rabbit Monster says Tennille was primarily a political cartoonist. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, uh, I do think he went for amusing rather than accurate, um, rather than accurate to the text. Exactly. Um, there's sometimes that his illustrations are quite. Um, it just don't match the description in the text very well at all. So anyway, but here's my point. Why Why does she need to worry herself about how she's going to manage giving her feet a new pair of boots, right? One of the things that makes this whole conversation about her feet and her, her, her estrangement from her feet, right, so odd is that, as far as I know, she has the normal-sized arms, right? Uh, and torso. That is, yes, she's larger, but I don't think she's going to have any more of a hard time reaching her feet. Um, in uh, in relative distance, she is going to be uh, maintaining the same relations with her feet that she's always had, right? It's true. Her eyes are very much further away from them, but then her hands can reach a great deal further uh, than she was able to before. Um, remember, She's going to get big again in chapter four. Um, I don't have a whole lot of passages that I wanted to look at in detail about that incident. But you'll notice that when she does, she retains the unity, the sense of the unity of her body, right? And indeed takes advantage of it, right? Um, she's stuck her arm out the window and she's trying to grab at people. Like she's trying to grab at the white rabbit with her hand, right? Um, the, uh, the uh, what's his name? What's the name of the creature that tries to, you know, the wizard that tries to come down, Bill, is it? Who tries to come down the chimney and she punts it up uh, the chimney, right? Um, she knows where her foot is, right? And coordinates her feet perfectly well. Um, so she's not going to have that same sense of detachment when she grows large again, right, later on. Um, and uh, 
Uh, and indeed, she's going to, you know, sort of try to use her size and the coordination of her body as much as she's restricted by the space, right? She's so large, she can barely fit in the room. Um, but um, uh, she still is going to try to use that to her advantage, right? So, again, I think that here as there, she is still proportional as she's been. And yet, still, once again, sees herself as two people, pretends to be two people, right? Uses her first reaction is to distance herself from herself and to think about how she's going to carry on relating to herself. So this whole question of like who, um, uh, who is, who, who is she? What is she? Right. How does, you know, how does she experience things, especially thinking about her, position as a child in this new world, right? How does that all fit in? So we'll see some other things here. Um, She, of course, begins to question her identity, right? She's trying to figure out who she is. Alice took up the fan and gloves, and as the hall was very hot, she kept fanning herself all the time she went on talking. This is while she's large, remember, and the rabbit dropped the gloves and fan. Dear, dear, how queer everything is today. And yesterday, things went on just as usual. I wonder if I've been changed in the night. Let me think. Was I the same when I got up this morning? I almost think I can remember feeling a little different. But if I'm not the same, the next question is, who in the world am I? Ah, that's the great puzzle. And she began thinking over all the children she knew that were of the same age as herself to see if she could have been changed for any of them. I'm sure I'm not Ada, she said, for her her hair goes in such long ringlets, and mine doesn't go in ringlets at all. And I'm sure I can't be Mabel, for I know all sorts of things, and she, oh, she knows so such a very little. Besides, she's she, and I'm I, and, oh dear, how puzzling it all is. I'll try if I know all the things I used to know. Let me see. Four times five is twelve, and four times six is thirteen, and four times seven is... Oh, dear. I shall never get to twenty at that rate. However, the multiplication table doesn't signify. Let's try geography. London is the capital of Paris, and Paris is the capital of Rome, and Rome... No, that's all wrong, I'm certain. I must have been changed for Mabel. I'll try and say, how doth the little... And she crossed her hands on her lap, as if she were saying lessons, and began to repeat it. But her voice sounded hoarse and strange, and the words did not come the same as they used to do. Okay. Um, Alice's conviction. She's changed, right? Yes, uh, poor Mabel, indeed, uh, JJ. Um, Of course, for Tolkien fans... Imagining Tolkien reading this, there's an irony here, right? Um, uh, of course, Mabel was Tolkien's mom's name. Um, so <laughs> I'm sure uh, um, this uh, must have been a, a strange passage for Tolkien to read. But anyway, um, Alice, how queer everything is today. And yesterday things went on just as usual. I wonder if I've been changed in the night. Her immediate explanation... There's no question that a number of queer things have been happening to her today, right? From the first falling down the rabbit hole, 
well, from the first seeing a talking rabbit wearing a waistcoat and having a watch to put in his waistcoat pocket, right? Um, to falling down the rabbit hole, to plummeting for an in, uh, an almost indefinite period of time, right? Landing uninjured, and then uh, <clears throat> having all um, all manner of uh, growth issues, right? Coming after you know the 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 drink and the cake, uh, and now the fanning, which of course, um, as we remember, the fanning that she's just begun to do is going to end up shrinking her down again, right? The fan the fan is somehow causing her to shrink. So again, no question, Alice is having a strange day indeed, right? But notice her immediate conclusion, right? Um, yesterday things went on just as usual. I wonder if I've been changed in the night. Her immediate assumption is not that she is normal and the whole world has gone crazy around her. She assumes that she herself must be different. Alice identifies the cause of all of her rather peculiar experiences this day as being... It's not just that it's all about her. It's all due to her, right? She is the cause of... If things are different, she must be the one that's different. Right? And this is itself a fascinating thing about Alice. Right? Um, it's not that the world has gone crazy around her. It's not that she's been transported to a different world. I mean, and you see that's the trope that's happening here. Right? Alice has crossed a threshold. And she has found herself in this fairy wonderland. Right? And it's very like fairy. This is like a fairy tale. It's not the same as a fairy tale, but it's like a fairy tale. She's crossed this threshold, and she's now in this strange world where the rules just don't seem to be quite the same as they are in our world. Right? Um, cause and effect, as we were looking at last time with the cake. Cause and effect. Or always talking about. Cause and effect doesn't operate the same way. Right? And yet, instead of being the normal person who is, you know, who is herself, who sees herself as the the one thing that is not changed, right? Um, the one sort of stable point now in a completely different context, right? Um, she assumes immediately that she must be the one that has changed, the one that's different. The whole world is presumably the same. But she's different. If things look different to her, that tells her... It's like, you know, if if she were to see something look a different color than she... You know, if she were to see orange grass or something like that, her first response would not be... Again, following this, paro, this, this pattern, right? She would look at orange grass and not say, I'm in a strange place that has orange grass instead of green, right? Instead, she would say, something seems to have happened to my eyes. Right? That's kind of the way that she's describing that. David, I agree. It does break the tropes of modern narrative in which we follow the main character's point of view and assume that they're the sane one in an insane world. Yes. And, you know, David, you think of the number of modern stories and films um, which are premised on this kind of thing, where it takes a long time to realize that it's the point of view character 
who's crazy, right? Or the point of view character who is, uh, you know, who has changed or something, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder if I've been changed in the night. <clears throat> and so she thinks back, was I the same person this morning before I fell down the rabbit hole, you know? Um, in, in, in other words, notice she's trying to, she's imagining herself as the root cause, not just like something changed me when I fell down the hole or something like that, right? But again, the hole itself, the entire inception of the experience originated in her when she woke up or something, right? Um, and she's, she thinks maybe she felt a little different when she woke up. And then she leaps to the immediate conclusion, which when she states it, feels so logical and yet is so strange, right? If I'm not the same, the next question is, who am I? The combination, the simultaneous insistence upon the stability and instability of the world that that question implies is kind of staggering, right? On the one hand, it applies this radical instability. I have changed, and therefore everything about... I can expect that nothing about the world is going to operate in the way that it did, that I used to know it, because I'm different now, right? And yet, there's this stability, like the middle ground of... I've changed, and so therefore I'm still me, but I'm a little different than I was. That's not possible, right? Uh, if she's different than she was, well, then that means she's obviously somebody else now, right? She can't be Alice anymore if she if she's changed. Um, so if the world is different, she must have changed. If she's changed, she has to be somebody else. And so the only thing that's left is trying to figure out whom she must be. Because it must be somebody she knows, right? She hasn't become a strange and new person. She's, um, uh, she's, she must have changed into somebody else. Again, you, you see what I mean by the insisting on the unchanging nature of things, right? There's only a finite number of people and everybody is always the same. Nobody changes. Right. So include especially her. Um, so, um, uh, so yeah, yeah. Um, and she just has to go through and she can rule out that she's Ada because Ada has ringlets in her hair and she does not. Therefore she is not Ada QED. Right. She can prove that it's, it's an objective fact. Um, cause if she had become Ada, she would have Ada's hair, and she doesn't, so she can't be Ada. Um, I'm sure I can't be Mabel, for I know all sorts of things, and she knows such a very little. Um, Mabel is very ignorant, and so she says, I can't be Mabel. So wait, she's here asserting again that she hasn't changed, right? Because she's saying, she's assuming she still knows all the things that she knew. So she's assuming not only... It's, this is notice this is not only about her her um, physical person, but also her mental awareness and consciousness, right? She's addressing both of those things here and assuming that any change would constitute both a physical and mental change, right? 
as she goes to both physical and mental proofs that she can't be the only other two people that apparently she can thinks are candidates, right? Um, and why, by the way, why are Ada and Mabel the only two people who are candidates for whom she might have become? Well, because they're the same age as herself, right? Um, again, she's insisting that things are unchanging, right? There's no possibility of her having changed into a, you know, 38-year-old man or something like that, right? Um, she doesn't even seem to imagine that she could have turned into a boy. Um, she just imagines she's obviously must be a, a different seven-year-old girl, right? I, once again, the presumption, the, the kind of limitations of her categories here show this really rigid thinking, and yet simultaneously this really flexible thinking. Alice is really hard to figure out, right, in these ways. Um, notice the insistent. She's she and I'm I, right? It can't, it can't be. It can't be. She can't be Mabel. She's she and I'm I. How puzzling it all is. So she tries to prove it by stating the things she used to know. Four times five is twelve, and four times six is thirteen, and four times seven is... Oh dear, I shall never get to twenty at that rate. Now, we see the irony... Um, we see the irony in that statement, right? Wherein lies the irony here? She's stating that she... You know, she knows her multiplication tables. Apparently, Mabel does not, right? But Alice does, because Alice is very clever. So Alice knows her her uh, multiplication tables, so she's going to recite these things. But she finds she cannot, right? She tries to say all the things that she memorized in the multiplication table, but it doesn't come out right. And yet you notice... How it ends? Oh dear, I shall never get to 20 at that rate. Right? You see that? Why 20? Why does she mention 20 at the end of that sentence? Well, 20 is 4 times 5, which is where she started. Right? So on the one hand, her multiplication table is not coming out right at all. 4 times 5 is 12, 4 times 6 is 13, 4 times 7 is... And she knows she was supposed to get to 20, right? So, like, somewhere in her mind, she still knows that 4 times 5 is 20. It's there, right? But it doesn't come out. Once again, there's this distance, like the distance between her and her feet, right? Um... And then she tries to uh, um, try geography. London is the capital of Paris, and Paris is the capital of Rome. Oh, that's all wrong, I'm certain. Once again, she knows that's not right. I get the geography, it's in there, right? She knows what these places are the capital of, and it's not each other, right? She's certain that this is wrong. 
But this leads, you know, she now very much fears that she's been changed for Mabel, right? So in desperation, she tries one more branch of study, right? And starts reciting a poem that she has duly uh, uh, memorized, right? So she starts reciting how doth the little. Um, crossed her hands on her lap as if she was saying lessons and began to repeat it. Um, now, um, keep in mind, um, yeah, keep in mind, um, yes, JJ, this is an actual known poem. We'll get there in a minute. All of these things are things that she's memorized. Every single one of these things. Like, she's not doing, you know, logical puzzles or, you know, writing an essay or something like that, right? She's trying to prove her own knowledge by reciting the things that she's been taught in her lessons and that she has memorized. And those things are not coming out. There's this disjunction between what is in her memory. We know it's there. We get evidence that it's there. But what's coming out of her mouth is different from what was in her head. And we see this again, of course, in the poetry. So here's the original poem that Alice memorized. This is by Isaac Watts. Uh, any of you know Isaac Watts, uh, great old uh, hymn writer. Um, I, wasn't Isaac Watts the guy who wrote When I Survey the, the Wondrous Cross? And uh, a whole bunch of really, really famous hymns Isaac Watts wrote. Um, uh, anyway, he also wrote some children's poetry. Here we go. How doth the little busy bee improve each shining hour and gather honey all the day from every opening flower? How skillfully she builds her cell, how neat she spreads the wax and labors hard to store it well with the sweet food she makes. In works of labor or of skill, I would be busy too, for Satan finds some mischief still for idle hands to do. In books or work or healthful play, let me my first... Let my, let my first years be past, that I may give for every day some good account at last. That is an improving poem, right? Which is very good for little girls to memorize, right? You can see, not only does it have a, a helpful moral at the end, right? Which I um, uh, botched. In books or work or healthful play, let my first years be past, that I may give for every day some good account at last. There we go. Very wholesome indeed, Mighty Felix, isn't it? Um, and um, But not only that, right? Um, that's kind of the general application. This has multiple levels of applicability, right? The title of the poem is Against Idleness and Mischief. Um, let my first years be past in books or work or healthful play. I've got three categories of things that are good for little children to do. Reading books, working, or healthful play, right? Um, and why should your first years be passed in these pursuits? That I may give for every day some good account at last, because someday you'll be called account, called to account for how you have spent your time. And if you have spent your time in those three things, then you will have nothing to be ashamed of. Um, you have avoided idleness and mischief, right? Um, the one worse than the other. 
But of course, we can see the more specific uh, morals all the way through, right? How doth the little busy bee improve each shining hour? So the hours are shining, right? Here's the bee buzzing around in the sunshine, going from flower to flower, surrounded by warmth and beauty, right? And yet the warmth and beauty that surrounds the bee is being improved by the bee's industry, right? Uh, it's improving upon, by adding industry to delight, right? Gathering honey all the day from every opening flower. So you've got the flowers, which are beautiful, and yet you're taking something else, like the, there's they're yielding honey, they're yielding sweetness and food in addition to beautiful sight and smell, right? Oh my goodness. Um, the only thing that flowers lack is taste, right? And the bee provides through its industry, right? Isn't that lovely? How skillfully she builds her cell, how neat she spreads the wax, and labors hard to store it well with the, f with the sweet food she makes. That not a uh, perfect line, but that's okay. Um, again, we see her laboring, her skillfulness, her industry, her neatness, right? Uh, like she not only does, she not only works, she's not only busy, she is a good craftsman, right? Does good work and neat work um, and uh, uh, is prudent, storing up the honey, right? Not just, uh, uh, not just enjoying the honey, but storing it away. Um, and then we get the application to ourselves, right? In works of labor or of skill, I would be busy too, for Satan finds some mischief still for idle hands to do. Ah, so this is why you should be busy with works of labor or of skill, right? Because the alternative to application, to busyness of this kind, is idleness, and idleness leads to mischief. And then we're just off... We're just off the cliff, right? Okay, this is what Alice learned. This is the poem that she memorized. This is the poem that she reaches for in order to um, comfort herself that she's not Mabel, right? Um, now, just going back for a second, we'll go forward to what she actually says, right? But, um, uh, but before we get there, notice this is the third thing in the progression, right? Her attempt, this is her threefold attempt to disprove the idea that she's Mabel, right? She can't be Mabel because she knows the multiplication table. But she fails. At the, the multiplication table doesn't come out right. Um, and then she tries geography, and that doesn't come out right. And then she tries to recite this poem that she's learned, and that's not going to come out right either, right? Um, but notice what all three of these things have in common. Um, it isn't just that she is citing knowledge, right? Um, it's not just, that, I mean, she says, she says it fairly vaguely, right? Um, I know all sorts of things. Yes, she may. But uh, the things that she reaches for to demonstrate this are all things that have, that she has memorized so things she's learned by rote. And they are all things that... Assert exactly, David. They're all things learned by rote. Um, so they're all things that have been delivered to her. Not things she's discovered. Not things that she's learned for herself. Right? These are all... This is all information that has been given to her. Things she has dutifully learned, right? And repeated in her lessons. Right? 
Um, she's repeat. This is adult knowledge that's been granted to her, vouchsafed to her, right? And she has repeated it back. But more, all of these things are very orderly and assert order, right? The multiplication table, very orderly, right? Um, this stating of these simple and absolute facts, you know, what is four times five, right? There can be no debate about this. Um, normally, there can be no debate about this. And of course, the multiplication table itself is very appealingly orderly as well, right? It works in multiple different directions, and it's always the same, whichever direction you go. Um, this... Um, the multiplication tables is very soothing when you're not sure when the world seems to be going crazy or maybe you have changed, right? She's trying to reassert order, um, both in her ability to recite, like, I have learned my lessons and I can show you, but also, the th you know, here is the multiplication table, right? Here is math and how it works. Here's geography, right? The, you know, the boundaries of countries and the capitals of countries, the, the orderly rule of the world, right? Um, countries and their capitals, specifically. And then the poem, which is about how things should be, right? And everything doing, and, and children doing their jobs so that they don't fall into this chaos which leads to mischief, right? Um, and yet, all of these orders all of this attempt to reassert order or even identify order fails her, right? This is what she actually says. How doth the little crocodile improve his shining tail and pour the waters of the Nile on every golden scale? How cheerfully he seems to grin, how neatly spreads his claws and welcomes little fishes in with gently smiling jaws. Uh, okay. So we've exchanged a bee for a crocodile, right? How doth the little busy bee, how doth the little crocodile. Notice also by exchanging the bee for the crocodile, that is a one-syllable animal for a three-syllable animal, um, we have to cut out a word from line one. Which word gets cut? Uh, busy, <laughs> right? In fact, the entire point. Um, the adjective, which points to the entire moral of the poem gets removed immediately. So even apart from the fact that we're not talking about crocodiles, I, I, I quite possibly crocodiles, uh, I, quite certainly crocodiles could be used to illustrate the same moral as bees, um, perhaps not quite so neatly or compellingly, but nevertheless, it could be done, right? The industrious little crocodile. Um, and indeed it acts, right? Um, and yes, there's irony from the beginning, Mighty Felix, in that crocodiles are really not that little, as you say, um, especially when compared with bees, right? One would have to admit. Um, how doth the little crocodile improve his shining tail? Uh, well, that line has one word in common with the original line, Right? improve. It starts the same. So the first line starts with the same four words, how doth the little, right? Um, but then it changes busy bee to crocodile. The second line rallies and starts again the same way, but here we only get the one word, right? Uh, 
Except, yeah, you're right. We get Shining too, but they're not in a row, right? And there's a, an important difference in between, right? Um, what's the difference between improve his Shining tale and improve each Shining hour? Well, on the one hand, each to his utterly transforms it, right? Even before we get to tail. Um, because it utterly changes the meaning of the first word, right? That anchoring word. Yeah, it becomes a self-reflected improvement, Sarah, just as you say. Um, improve, in the Isaac Watts version, improve doesn't mean that like the sorry the crocodile is making his shiny shining tail more shining right he's making improving his tail he's making his tail better right improve each shining hour does kind of mean make the hours even better right um but it's uh it's a it's a slightly vaguer use more metaphorical use of the word improve right um it's a, a sort of an archaic usage, right? To Im to improve an hour means to make use of it, to make to make good of it, right? Uh, to make something out of it, um, not just to like polish it up, exactly, right? Again, that seems to be kind of lurking metaphorically in the way that that word is being used archaically here. Um, archaic, I think, even in the nineteenth century, slightly. Um, I think it's archaic even. It might not be, but I think it is. Um, uh, Isaac Watts, kind of an old-fashioned guy. Um, exactly, Edith. The hour itself isn't improved. It's a better usage of that hour. Exactly. That's how it's metaphorical, right? The hour's not literally being made better, right? Um, uh, yeah, exactly. Here, the improving is being made literal, and the action is turned entirely inward, right? Um, the crocodile is being self-indulgent. Thank you, yes. Isaac Watts was writing in the 18th century. So it is archaic, right? It's 100 years old for Alice. There you go. Um, yes. Um, would the kids reading this be familiar with the Watts poem, Mudmore? I am uh, almost 100% sure they would. Yeah, yeah. Um they would get the joke, the joke of this poem. Yeah, no, no question. I, yes, yes. Um, and just think, I mean, even we retain memories of this poem, right? Not the whole poem itself, right? But for Satan finds some mischief still for idle hands to do. Um, that idea, right, of, uh, uh, you know, idle hands being the devil's tools is still... Mem distant memory, perhaps, but still remembered uh, in our culture. You can find reference to it, right, in uh, um, uh, titles to, uh, uh, you know, like news articles or movies or something like that at times, right? I mean, it's, that's still a concept, right? Um, uh, yeah, no, they definitely would have known the Isaac Watts poem. Um, anyway, okay. Improve his shining tale. So now it's about um, 
it's about his tale. Exactly. Yeah, David, I was thinking of the film called Idle Hands from the early 2000s. Yeah, like I said, that's still remembered, right? That concept is still remembered now. Um, okay. And pour the waters of the Nile on every golden scale. Sorry. Stupid brace. Okay. <laughs> I keep hitting things with my clunky hand. Okay. Sorry. Struggling, but trying to make it work. Okay, let's see. And gather honey all the day from every opening flower. And pour the waters of the Nile on every golden scale. Notice what happens here. The action is reversed. The bee is gathering this liquid substance. You know, we're, the child is being invited to imagine that honey in its final form is being extracted from the flowers, which is not exactly how it works, but, you know, kind of close. But notice that it's, um, uh, again, it's reversed. Instead of gathering liquid, he's pouring out liquid. Pour the waters of the Nile on every golden scale. Um... Okay, so he's pouring waters on his... That's how he's improving his shining tail, right? Yes, yeah, Cecilia, thank you. I, 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 I thought, but I had a moment of doubt, so I didn't say it. But yeah, this is the guy who wrote Joy, Joy to the World, The Christmas Carol, Isaac Watts. Yeah, a super famous hymn writer. Wrote lots and lots of things. Um, thanks. Yeah, I, I, was, I was about to say it, and I'm like, wait, am I right about that? I, had a, I doubted myself for a moment, so I didn't say it. Um, but yes, Joy to the World. Um, Got our help in ages past when I survey the wondrous cross. Yeah, Isaac Watts, all over the place, man. Um, hugely famous hymn writer. Um, okay, anyway. And gather honey all the day from every opening flower. And pour the waters of the Nile on every golden scale. So now instead of showing his industry, like the bee is showing its industry by collecting honey from all over the place, right? He is pouring water on each one of his scales, right? Lavishing this additional luxurious attention upon every individual one of his scales in order to make his tail more shining, right? So we've taken this image of industry and we've turned it into one of vanity and self-indulgence, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, how cheerfully he seems to grin. How neatly spreads his claws. How skillfully she builds her cell. How neat she spreads the wax. Right? Um, remember, this is where we shift here in the second quatrain of the Isaac Watts poem into expanding, not merely industrious, right, but skillful um, she's engaging in not just in, in works of labor or of skill, right? She's applying skill as well as labor, uh, right? In her, in her gathering of her honey and now her building of her cell. How neat she spreads the wax. How neatly spreads his claws. We're still anchored to the original poem, right? With the word, with neat, Right? But instead of spreading the wax neatly, instead of illustrating her skill in building, right, we have his neat spreading of his... Of course, spreads is linked to it as well. right? Neatly spreads his claws. 
um, which seems rather threatening. Um, how skillfully she builds her cell, how cheerfully he seems to grin. We have, of course, the famous um, grin of the crocodile, right? Crocodiles have a very wide grin indeed, right? They're always grinning hugely, right? Um, but toothily and rather ominously, right? And now he's spreading his claws and welcomes little fishes in with gently smiling jaws. Um, there is no recollection of the original in either of those two lines, and labors hard to store it well with the sweet food she makes. Um, and welcomes little... So he's... She's departed entirely from the original poem now, no longer retains a memory, and it's now very grim indeed, right? Um, and notice the irony as well. He does indeed welcome little fishes in, right? Uh, with gently smiling jaws. The gentleness of the jaws of the crocodile, right? His welcome to little fishes as he's going to eat them, right? Um the ominous line of claws and jaws, right, that we get here in the second quatrain. Um, hang on a second. Um, hmm. Interesting. Ah, okay. That's fascinating. I thought for a second that he changed Alice, you know, that, that Lewis Carroll changed the, uh, um, rhyme scheme, too. Um, but he doesn't change his rhyme scheme, right? Um, but he does do something to it. So notice, this is A-B-A-B -A -B all the way through. Crocodile, tail, Nile, scale, grin, claws, in, jaws, right? Um, Isaac Watts' version, I was thrown off by the first quatrain. Be our day flower. There's no A rhyme at all, right? Now, in the second quatrain, sell, wax, well, makes, makes is, I think, in the early 18th century, wax and makes would have rhymed much better than it does in modern English, modern American English, I would add. Um, uh, but, um, but anyway. I'm going to read that one still as a rhyme anyway. The second quatrain is A-B-A-B, -A -B, but the first one is not. The busy bee breaks the rhyme scheme at the beginning, um, which is interesting, isn't it? And Alice fixes the rhyme scheme. This works perfectly now all the way through. And you'll notice what else gets fixed. And labors hard to store it well with the sweet food she makes. The rhythm of that line is really quite bad. And labors hard to store it well with the, with the sweet food she makes. Six syllables. Okay, and then the problem is, it would work fine, except the meter wants there to be a stressed syllable uh, on the word the. And... Uh, the tongue rebels against stressing the word the, 
Right? You just can't get yourself to say, with the sweet food she makes. Right? Yeah, exactly. Super awkward, Buddy Felix. It's you can't really do that. Right. I mean it just it it won't it won't it won't it won't play. It won't scan. Like you just can't the is like the last word. Maybe uh, right? Even that. Sometimes you do stress uh when you're stressing the indefiniteness of the article, right? Um uh but the sometimes again if you're stressing the in the in the sorry, the, the definiteness of the article, maybe, but still, with the sweet food she makes, super awkward, right? Um but notice in Alice's new version it's beautiful and welcomes little fishes in with gently smiling jaws. Um, it works perfect. So he's fixed the broken rhyme and he's fixed the broken meter, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that's really interesting. And yes, I agree. Conceptually, there's a parallel between the crocodile and the bee in the second quatrain, right? Um, we've got the skillfulness of the workmanship of the bee in the second quatrain, but um, the point of it, right? I mean, this is, of course, for Isaac Watts, a double lesson, right? Because she's not only working skillfully and beautifully, right? This wax is really neat. But also, it's also good work, right? The labor is for a purpose, it does a job to store to store well the sweet food that she's made, right? Um, so showing prudence as well as skill, you know, adding prudence to skill in industry, right? Oh my goodness, this is just the greatest thing ever, right? Um, the crocodile is also gathering in food and storing food away in his jaws, right? welcoming the little fishes in with gently smiling jaws. Um, it's parallel in a way. It's also reversed in a way, right? Instead of storing it away to be eaten later, he's eating the little fishes all now, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. That's, um, there's some tension. There's some tension there, right? Notice, do you catch the other thing that happened right before the start of the poem? It's not just that the words don't come out right. Her voice doesn't come out right. She began to repeat it, but her voice sounded hoarse and strange, and the words did not come the same as they used to do. There's this disjunction, which was implied before, right? She still clearly knows what four times five is, right? But it, it, won't, it won't come out right. She knows what the capitals are of the different countries in Europe, but it, they don't come out right. She knows how doth the little. Um, but the words don't come the same as they used to do, and her voice doesn't even come the way that it used to do. So, um, and she fears that she really must be, she really must be Mabel after all, right? So again, this disjunction of identity that we get from Alice, we started this evening looking at the passage where we see she likes to imagine herself to be two different people, right? Now she's just trying to find out which person she is. And it seems to be a different person. She was afraid she was she was moving to a different 
mailing address from her feet before as she was growing, right? Now there seems to be some kind of disconnection. Like, now her brain and her tongue are not living at the same address anymore, right? Um, and this is all very perplexing to Alice, and she doesn't understand. Um, yeah, I don't know if Mabel sounds like that, JJ, or not, but uh, but we'll see. Um, look at this. So her foot slips, and she falls up to her chin in salt water. She's been fanning herself, remember, this whole time, right? And apparently getting small. As she said these words, her foot slipped, and in another moment, splash, she was up to her chin in salt water. Her first idea was that she had somehow fallen into the sea, and in that case, I can go back by railway, she said to herself. Alice had been to the seaside once in her life, and had come to the general conclusion that, wherever you go on the English coast, you find a number of bathing machines in the sea, some children digging in the sand with wooden spades, and then a row of lodging houses, and behind them a railway station. However, she soon made out that she was in the pool of tears, which she had wept when she was nine feet high. I wish I hadn't cried so much, said Alice, as she swam about, trying to find her way out. I shall be punished for it now, I suppose, by being drowned in my own tears. That will be a queer thing, to be sure. However, everything is queer today. Um, okay, so a bathing machine. That's, uh, Mighty Felix, have you seen, like, the boxes on poles um, that got carried into the water, right? That's a bathing machine. Um, uh, so, like, it's for bathing in the salt water without being exposed to public view, right? Um, uh, yeah, that's what a bathing machine is. Um, okay. She's in salt water. Therefore, she can get back home by railway. This is good news. She's in salt water, so there must be a train nearby. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Do you see the logic underlying that conclusion? Do you see what the logic hinges on? Right? Um... what the logic hinges on. Yeah, if you, uh, I think if you Google Victorian bathing machines, you can find pictures. Um, some are more or less elaborate. Some were just boxes on poles that people carried in to the ocean. Sometimes it's like a whole little house, like a little outbuilding, right, that would get um, uh, backed into the water and then pulled out by animals, by horses or donkeys or something. Um, uh, yeah, there's... Um, Lots of different options. It was a modesty thing. Because you can't wear all of your clothes in swimming. Um, that's not possible. So, um, not to mention that being in the water does rather in, immodest things to your apparel anyway, right? So, yeah, it's a modesty thing. Um, anyway, okay. Um... Notice 
the essential conclusion, the essential presumption that underlies Alice's conclusion. If I'm in salt water, therefore I can get home by railway, right? There must be a train nearby that will bring me home. Why? Because she had been to the seaside once. And her conclusion was, wherever you go on the English coast, you find a number of bathing machines in the sea, some children digging in the sand with wooden spades, then a row of lodging houses, and behind them a railway station. How did she come to that conclusion? Well, because apparently that's what she saw when she went to the coast, when she went to the seaside, right? This is a description, I'm presuming, right, of the seaside experience that Alice had when she went there. Um, and therefore, the entire English coastline is like that, right? So you see the logic, right? Um, when I went to the seaside, it looked like this, including the railway station right nearby, right? Therefore, that's what the coastline, that's what the seaside in general looks like. At the seaside, there was salt water. I'm in salt water right now. Therefore, I must be in the sea. And since I just fell into the, the I was standing on the shore a minute ago, right? Therefore, I must be at the seaside. Therefore, there must be a train nearby, which will take me back home because that's what happened then, right? The seaside trip wasn't Alice's normal life. That was an interruption of Alice's normal life, right? She was taken out of her normal nursery experience and she was transported by train that time to the seaside, which was like a different world. Things were different there, right? In her nursery back home, for instance, there were presumably fewer bathing machines, children digging in the sand with wooden spades, and like rows of lodging houses, right? That's not what her normal world looked like. She was taken to this other world, and then, and this is what's important, came back by train to her normal world from that unusual world at the seaside, right? Now, of course, the seaside experience that she had was uh, far more normal than this particular experience that she's having, right? Um, but the the general the generality of her conclusion is what is peculiar here. It's is what is most interesting. Um, I must be at the seaside. Is not. There's a leap there, but it's... I can get behind that. That's an understandable leap, right? Ultimately, the major leap that she's doing here is a leap that tells us about her and her perception of herself in the world, right? I've experienced this one thing one time, right? But I assume that all of the rest of the world is like that, right? The entire coastline of England must be exactly like that one part of the coastline of England that I have seen, right? Um, obviously, that must be true. Once again, we see her sort of rigid assumptions, right? Um, but it's comforting. There is order in the world, and one of the things that is orderly about the world is that there are railway stations right behind the row of lodging houses behind every 
inch of the of the seaside, right? And she knows many things, right? Like, for instance, the ocean is salt water. She knows that, right? Um, that I think she probably did not even just learn by rote, right? That she's learned by experience. Uh, and she's applying that experience very admirably, right? Um, but ultimately, what is she actually in? She, she's actually in the pool of tears which she herself had wept. In fact, the world that she is currently in is not the world that she thinks, right? The real world doesn't quite work the way that she thinks, but maybe that's a forgivable assumption she's made. Instead, she has created the sea of the salt water that she is, she's now threatening to drown in her own tears, right? The very tears which she was advising herself very sharply not to make earlier. Remember, that was where we started tonight's class, right? With her rebuke of herself um, that she should not cry so much. And what, it was particularly ridiculous to cry when she is such a big girl. As a nine-foot-tall girl, right, is a very big girl indeed, and so should certainly not be crying. But she did, and now she's floating in the salt water uh, of the pool of her own tears. It's, I guess, not quite like boxing yourself in the ears, but it's a little bit like that, right? Uh, as little diminutive Alice is now suffering uh, from something that large big girl Alice did. Again, there are multiple Alices, right? And the one Alice is suffering from not heeding the advice. When did she give that advice? Oh, when she was little, before. And it was when she was big that she was not heeding that advice, right? And now she's little again, and now she's suffering for the thing that the other Alice did by not listening to her advice. So, in fact, her sense of her own division, her pretending to be two people, um, she might have felt at the time that there wasn't enough of her to make one respectable person. But, in fact, she was quite wrong, right? Um, she did become two people, and now we're seeing that the other Alice should very much, should very definitely have listened to her advice, right? Um, very strange. Would it be of any use now, thought Alice, to speak to this mouse? Everything is so out of the way down here that I should think it, think very likely it can talk. At any rate, there's no harm in trying. So she began, O oh, mouse, do you know the way out of this pool? I am very tired of swimming about here, O oh, mouse. Alice thought this must be the right way of speaking to a mouse. She had never done such a thing before, but she remembered having seen in her brother's Latin grammar a mouse, of a mouse, to a mouse, a mouse, O oh, mouse. The mouse looked at her rather inquisitively and seemed to her to wink with one of its little eyes, but it said nothing. Um, what, uh, why did her brother's Latin grammar say a mouse, of a mouse, to a mouse, a mouse, o oh mouse? 
what what is what was she reading? She doesn't understand it, right? But what was she reading there? That was the declension, right? The noun cases, yeah. Nominative, genitive, dative, accusative. I think accusative. Straight to vocative, o mouse, right? She seemed to have skipped ablative, but who knows? Maybe her brother's not that good at Latin. Um, yeah, this is the uh, how to decline a noun, right? Um, but she saw the phrase, oh, mouse, in there. And so she's going to, um, uh, she's going to use that, right? Uh, she That must be the right way of speaking to a mouse. I mean, it was in the book, right? Um, Perhaps it doesn't understand English, thought Alice. I dare say it's a French mouse, come over with William the Conqueror. For with all her knowledge of history, Alice had no very clear notion how long ago anything had happened. Right? So she knows that there was this French person, William the Conqueror, who came over to England a while back. Um, and perhaps he brought this mouse with him. And so, therefore, it's a French mouse. So she began again, Où est ma chatte? Which was the first sentence in her French lesson book. The mouse gave a sudden leap out of the water and seemed to quiver all over with fright. Of course, we know what she has just said in French to the mouse, right? Well, Alice's audience would know because they would probably be using the same French lessons book, le lesson books as Alice did. Où est ma chat means where is my cat, right? Um, the mouse gave a sudden leap out of the water and seemed to quiver all over with fright. Oh, I beg your pardon, cried Alice hastily, afraid she had hurt the poor animal's feelings. I quite forgot you didn't like cats. Not like cats, cried the mouse in a shrill, passionate voice. Would you like cats if you were me? Oh, it does speak English. Yeah, and Arwen, I also thought at first that he was making an amo amas amat joke. Right, which is the famous illustration of how to conjugate a verb, right? Um, the verb to love, right? Um, amo, amas, amat, amamus, amatis, amant, right? Um, uh, even I remember memorizing that a long time ago. Um, I don't think so, though. I, when he did the... It's pretty clear that he's looking at the noun cases, right? Nominative, genitive, dative. Uh, that seems pretty clear. Um, but it, when you say it, it begins to sound like amo, amas, amat, um, the repetition of mouse that way. But anyway, okay. So the mouse understands her French, but then speaks in English in a shrill, passionate voice. Would you like cats if you were me? Right? The very first thing that this mouse does, so Alice says a sentence from her French grammar with no regard for the mouse at all, right? Alice is being quite self-absorbed here, in a sense, 
right? Um, really, it wouldn't have taken much thoughtfulness to realize that maybe where is my cat would be a rude thing to say to a mouse whose acquaintance you're looking to cultivate, right? Um, not just a mere reference to cats, right? But that sentence, where's my cat, right? I mean, it sounds like a threat, doesn't it, right? Um, so we see her not... Um, uh, not able to get um, out of um, out of her own head, right? She likes to pretend that she's two people, but she's not doing a very good job of putting herself into the perspective of someone else, namely the mouse, right? She thinks only from her own perspective, and we'll see her continue to make this mistake, right? She continually... Uh, keeps bringing up Dinah and saying, I would like to introduce you to Dinah, right? Um, she makes this mistake again and again and again. And you're right. Um, I Her French is, in fact, incorrect. How is it incorrect exactly? What's wrong with her French? Her French hasn't come out right either, which we shouldn't be surprised by, as nothing that she's memorized has come out right yet. What's wrong with her French? And why has she made this mistake? Yes, you are correct. The, um, I believe you're correct that the correct French should be où est mon chat? She's made it feminine. Yeah. Why? Exactly, Jocelyn, because Alice has a female cat. Duh, right? Dinah, her female cat, is the one she talks about all the time, right? Um, yeah, yeah, so she makes the cat feminine. Of course she does. Of course Alice would do that, because she's thinking about her cat, right? Who's a female cat, that seems typical. So again, not only does it come out wrong, but it comes out wrong in this way, which shows again Alice's own self-absorption. Right? Her focus on herself. Um, we've seen her detach from herself, but now we're seeing her like inability to detach from herself. Right? Would you like cats if you were me? The very first thing the mouse does is challenge Alice to do exactly what she's failing to do. Right? Imagine you are me and how you would respond to that idea, right? But Alice, although she quite enjoys pretending um, to be two separate people, uh, doesn't seem to do that, right? Ah, very good. Jackrabbit, excellent. Now that's something that even fewer modern readers pick up. The, ma the, the mouse's grammar is incorrect. English grammar. Would you like cats if you were me? It should not be if you were me. It should be, would you like cats if you were I? Would be the correct way to say it. He's, you should use the nominative case. Now, modern English speakers, at least in America, have almost wholly lost track of this. And when they try to do it correctly, they 
make it wrong when it would have been right half the time, right? Um, modern Americans just can't get first-person pronoun uh, uh, cases right. They just don't get it at all, which is not surprising, because since most Americans can't tell the difference between a nominative noun and a direct object, um, then they've got a problem with this kind of thing. Uh, but anyway, you'll remember we saw this before, right? Curiouser and curiouser, cried Alice. She was so much surprised that for the moment she quite forgot how to speak good English. Right? That was um, a little foretaste of what was going to happen, right? Um, she quite forgot how to speak good English. Uh, that is, what comes out of her mouth is not what has been trained in her brain, what she has learned and memorized in her brain. She knows good English, and that curiouser is not a word, right? But it comes out, right? And, um, of course, curiouser and curiouser is uh, one of the most famous quotations from this entire book, right? So you might, uh, you know, we might not sort of see the way that this fits in the trend. Um, but, um, yeah, exactly, Tim Duff. Like when people try to be all correct and say, you know, this is just keep this between you and I, right? That's wrong. Um, uh, object of preposition, me. Anyway, whatever. Um, so, yes, you're right, um, Jack Rabbit. That's uh, one of the fun things here, right? The mouse's English is not good. Right. Um, yeah. So, um, what's happening here? Right. What do we see? Again, you see how this all fits into this um, interesting but kind of conflicting trend. I was talking about like flexibility and, and rigidity simultaneously. Right in Alice's perspective, the kinds of assumptions that she makes. Now, uh, one or two of you was trying to um, sort of defend Alice, right? You know, at her age, this kind of thing is totally normal. Sure it is, but I think that misses the point, right? Um, it is important, that is important that that's true, in that Lewis is dealing, Lewis Carroll is dealing with things that are, in fact, from childhood experience, right? He's not just... The strangeness, the queerness of this experience is rooted in the reality of child perspective, right? But he's playing with that and riffing off that and distorting that in various ways, right? That's kind of the starting point, right? Um... But it doesn't just stay there, right? Um, I, again, I... Well, Alice might be, in the end, a perfectly normal little girl, right? As C.S. Lewis says. But she's certainly not having a normal experience. And what we see is her continually trying to parse her experience. Um, again, notice the link. She can't communicate, she fails all the way through to communicate with a mouse, right? Um, because she keeps bringing up cats and when not cats, dogs, 
right? She just can't get out of her own perspective and into the mouse's perspective. She keeps putting her foot into it, right? Because she believes that, uh, because she's speaking from her own perspective. She's speaking about things that she wants to talk about that are comforting to her. The idea, the memory of her cat is very comforting. We saw her thinking of her cat while she was plummeting down the hole, right? Um, but of course, it's not going to be comforting to a mouse. But remember her, the way that she parsed this entire experience, right? There's something, there must be something different about me. It's all about me, right? I must have woken up differently. I must be somebody else. And that's why I'm having all of these strange experiences that aren't like my normal experiences. And yet I'm going to assume that things are like my normal experiences and that there must be trains near the seaside no matter where I am. I'm in salt water and therefore must be near a train because that's how my world works, right? So again, simultaneously um, yeah, fl too flexible and too rigid, right? And of course, the sea that she is swimming in currently is in fact the sea of her tears. Indeed, in, in other words, yes, she actually did make this world, right? This strange world that she's living in. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, really fascinating stuff that Lewis Carroll is playing with here. Um, so I'm trying to kind of work out the... Um, um, uh, work out the boundaries here. Right, the kind of frontiers along which the 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 queerness of this queer world is is operating. Um, we're gonna come back to well, okay. Look at that. I almost got to chapter three, but actually, I'm not gonna talk about too many things in chapters three and four. So this is okay. This is okay. Um, having seen some of these things, we'll see how this proceeds. We get the caucus race. I don't have too many things to say about the caucus race. Um, I'm more interested in the mouse's speech um, with which he's going to dry Alice off. Um, and, uh, and of course, you know I'm interested in the mouse's poem, right? Um, so we'll certainly get there. Um, but go ahead, read, keep reading chapter five and six. We'll see how far we get. Um, I may at some point declare us just behind my own mentor. As you can see, I'm trying to do two chapters a week. Not exactly succeeding in that so far, but don't worry. I think we may catch up. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Jack Rabbit has a really good observation. When she was falling down the hole, she was talking about Dinah finding a mouse to catch, and she finds one, right? Yeah. Is she creating this world, right? Um, what is the link between this world and her? Um, how can she figure that out, right? What exactly? And of course, if this is her dream, she kind of is making this world, right? Anyway, whatever. We'll see how this continues, right? We'll see what... Um, one of the things that you'll see that I'm doing here is trying to figure out what does this text care about, right? What is in... Along what lines is it inviting us to think? How... Even amidst the silliness of this story which is deliberately silly, right? Um, you know, Lewis Carroll had strict instructions that there, there should be nonsense in it, right? And yet again, as I've said before, I've never found Lewis Carroll's works actually nonsensical. Um, and I've always been a little bit frustrated. Um, I've always felt it was lazy 
to dismiss it as not there is nonsense in a sense there is nonsense right um but it is not merely random it is not merely arbitrary there and i feel like every modern retelling of this story misses that this fact there are some very particular things that this story is interested in there are particular rules that it's playing with right and i think if when we look carefully we can kind of pick up what are some of the rules um and how this all makes sense in alice's context and therefore by extension to in the in the minds of his juvenile audience right anyway more on this next time um i will uh we'll be back next week um i should be able to be back for the next few weeks so uh see you next week five and six we'll get to blue caterpillars smoking hookahs next time with any luck thanks everybody have a good night now